Yeah, I, I'm the oldest living millennial. Um, <laughs> I'm very proud of it. Um, you know, I might... <laughs> <laughs> Layton almost spit out her beer on that yeah. one. Like, I, I was watching it and I was like, oh, oh no, my turns out okay. Episode 153 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a craft brewed pint of fine wine, or whatever happens to be in your glass. Catch new episodes weekly as the Reverend Shannon Meacham, Olgan Holder, and a special guest address and engage what's happening through a theological lens, usually with a good brew in hand. Today we welcome two special guests as Layton is on, as Layton. Layton, there you are. You thought I'm making Oh, goodness. This is going to be a long episode, you guys. Um, <laughs> as Ogan is on vacation for three more days in Barbados because we love and hate him. <laughs> so first, we welcome back our regular rotating guest, Layton Williams. Layton is a writer, a first place pub quiz champion. Thank you. Applause is welcome. <laughs> A PCUSA minister, and she is currently based in Charleston, South Carolina, with her cat Gryffindor, and serves at Sunrise Church on Sullivan's Island. She is also the author of Holy Disunity, What Separates Us Can Save Us. And I'm very excited, first time host guest, we welcome our Eric Thomas to the show. A true Renaissance man, or as we call it these days, just another millennial trying to make ends meet in the arts. Mm -hmm. Our Eric Excel um, is, yes, you do. You excel. I wrote that. You excel as a staff writer for L.com, where he writes a Lin-Manuel Miranda recommended column. Eric reads the news. I feel like that should like follow that everywhere. Well, it's you tattooed go. across my forehead. It should be. I was just going to say it should be. Like, I just want to pause and be like, I feel like I now have like one step closer separation to Lin-Manuel Miranda. Just well, he's, he's coming in the door right now. He's, he's <laughs> now my friend, my close and personal friend. Um, <laughs> so your new book, which I read, um, cover to cover last week, and I didn't bring for you to sign, which I'm really upset at now. I'll just, I've got many, many of them. Okay. <laughs> I love, by the way, Jarek totally was like, look what I bought. And I was like, I bought that. I ordered it. It's my book. He's a terrible person. No, he's a wonderful man. And I love you, honey. Um, anyway, back to your bio. He is the author of newly released, um, here for it, how to save your soul in America. Just want to point out that both of your books have something about saving us in the title, yeah, we need salvation. which clearly <laughs> is something to say. We need it. Yep. And I didn't know this. I'm very excited about this. A soon to be published Reclaiming Her Time, a biography by, of Representative Maxine Waters, co-authored with Helena Andrews Dyer. I'm so excited for that. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and if that wasn't enough, Eric is a playwright, host of The Moth in Philly and D.C. He lives in Baltimore with his husband, the Reverend David Norse, who is a PCA USA pastor, along with their houseplants, which are lovely and in the windows here. <laughs> so welcome to you both. Thanks for being on the show. You're doing me a huge favor. Thanks for having us. You can show your love for Pub Theology Live for becoming a supporter on Patreon. 
Visit patreon.com slash ptlive to get started, see extended interviews, and pre- and post-show shenanigans. See clips from the show and join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, IGTV, and YouTube using the hashtag PTLive. Today we discuss awkwardness, generational identity, and paths to success, or non-success, and more. So, um, Eric, you are our very special guest. What are we drinking today? We have this lovely, <laughs> I feel like I'm on Price is Right, which is all I've ever wanted to be on. We have a lovely Pinot Grigio 2018, uh, drinking out of these gorgeous wine glass that we got for our wedding. Yay! I am also drinking this as well. And my guess is this bottle will be gone before we're done. <laughs> if it's a good show, it will be. <laughs> um, I am drinking a beer, an IPA called Hopness Haze, um, which is from Catawba Brewery, which I think is North Carolina based. Um, it's a hazy IPA, which I recently discovered is my favorite sub-brand of IPA. <laughs> Interesting. And the thing to note about this particular beer is that two weeks ago, three of my best friends from seminary came to visit for our annual reunion, uh, which we spend most of pretty thoroughly intoxicated. And uh, my friend Kevin bought this six pack and I drank a lot of it. But <laughs> we won't say how many of the six pack, but yeah, was- I mean, yeah, there were multiple six packs, I should say, over the course. <laughs> um, and I had it multiple times and I vaguely remember liking it, but honestly, it was like, too intoxicated to remember more than that. So I decided I should buy it myself and try it out. <laughs> what is so far hazy, so good. What is a hazy IPA? What's haze mean? Um, I think it means it's unfiltered because like you can look at, this is what it looks like in the glass. So it's kind of like a, uh, a wheat beer sort of consistency. Okay. Um, apparently that's the New England style versus like West Coast style, which is something different. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's like rap battle, uh, rap beefs across the country as well as uh, IPA beefs, which is very... Yeah. I recently realized I'm basically a basic bro because I just... <laughs> well, it's not a white club, about that. Like- <laughs> Yeah, no. That's a basic bitch, though. A basic bro, like the IPAs are the white claws of beer. If you know too much about IPAs, <laughs> you're a basic bro. Yeah. <laughs> Brian is too. We make fun of him regularly for it. He, he would back you up if he were here. Um, So Leighton, this question comes from you, actually, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, Our first question, do you think people are born awkward or do they have awkwardness thrust (laughs) upon them? I've had awkwardness thrust upon me. It is not. (laughs) In fact, I was married to it for a long time. (laughs) But I have to ask you before we answer, what prompted you to ask this question? I really want to know. Yeah, so I put this out on Twitter, and um, truth be told, I said in the tweet, and it was sincere, that I like this question, though I have to admit, not always this particular phrasing, this question, I regularly think about it when I'm driving in the car after I've just done something really awkward. And I'm like, did I ever have a chance? (laughs) (laughs) Was I just like a baby sitting there with all the potential for awkwardness that I have lived out already contained within me and not a damn thing to be done. Um, Yeah, I see. And I I really thought about this, which is why I wanted to talk about it and not just respond. Because like, for me, I have such a range of what awkward is. Like, so I'm a very social person. I'm good in social situations. But like, I've watched myself or others like me be awkward by being too social mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. like 
you go talk to people who are like, I don't really, why are you at my table? Go away. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is like, even when my kids were little, we had a rule of like, talk to the people you came with. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, mm -hmm. like that lady in the booth doesn't want to share your mac and cheese with you. Like stay, <laughs> stay here, you know? So there, so it doesn't always mean to me a lack of social ability. Right. If that makes sense. No, I think, I think that's really true. I think, you know, there are a lot of people there's a level of extroversion that I find equally as awkward as, as introversion. Like the kind, you know, it's interesting. I think there was this video online uh, a couple of days ago of Oprah and Kate Hudson doing a, like a, a promotional tasting of Kate Hudson's new vodka because that's a thing that we all need to know about. Uh, <laughs> Kate Hudson has a vodka, and it was it was very awkward. Like the mm. two of them were like, they toasted each other and they did little shots in this weird little green room at backstage of Oprah's Living Your Best Life tour. Um, and they made awkward small talk. And these are both two highly uh, accomplished people uh, who are, who I think most people would think of Kate Hudson and especially Oprah as like, especially socially adept. But like, I think awkward is just like conditional. Like yeah. if you're selling a vodka backstage at a, wherever you are, it's not gonna be the smoothest interaction. Um, mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, if I have to sell something, I'm done. Right. Like, mm -mm, yeah. I'm terrible at that. I just, I also feel like, I feel like the, the standard human condition is awkward and like mm -hmm. normalness or whatever is a performance, which is like my whole thing. Like I just feel yes. like, there's this idea that we can be, um, you know, the, the, the most, the, the swan that like knows what they're doing at all times, everyone is okay with, and that, you know, we are Grace and Beauty personified, we're Anne Hathaway, we're Linda Evangelista or whatever. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a performance. Like we're all, and that's the trick. We're all being told that the way we stand, we are normally is the, is, is weird or awkward and that we need to like act uh as if we know what we're doing um and i i so i think everyone's born awkward honestly well and i think i mean to shannon's original point about like i don't know different ways of understanding awkward um i do think you know you have like this layer of self-perceived awkwardness versus uh societally implicated awkwardness right? right and like they don't always line up um and you know i'm certainly somebody who always self-perceived as awkward right uh regardless and so like when i have like a social gaffe i feel like it's the end of the world and like i'm old now I'm mature enough that i can laugh about it and move on eventually but you know i mean my whole time growing up i was like to myself i was the weird awkward kid in my family and i just have to say that my sister who's uh she's technically my stepsister but we grew up together she's 10 months older than me beautiful um, smart, athletic, all these things. Um, also in high school, if she listens to this, she might kill me, but you know, <laughs> had her, had her ditzy moments. Mm -hmm. And there is this amazing story from when my family and I, uh, we got to go to London one year, uh, over New Year's. It was this massive, uh, deal, big trip. And, uh, she and I went out one night, um, to a bar because I guess you can get away with that in London when you're 16. <laughs> and, uh, and we were talking to these guys, and you have to know that my sister is from South Carolina, small town South Carolina, um, and we're in this bar, and the song Brown Eyed Girl comes on, mm -hmm. right? And she says, oh my God, I love this song. My friends and I shag to this song all the time. Oh no. 
because the shag is like the dance of South Carolina, right? And she really did have these house parties. But of course, in England, that means something different. And so like, the guys were like, you, you what? <laughs> and she'd be like, yeah, we have parties. Like, we all get together. And it was, it was hysterical. She had no idea. I knew and was like cracking up. Um, right. You know what? She, I think she felt not an ounce of awkwardness. Mm. Like she thought it was funny when she finally realized what had happened and kind of laughed it off. And you know, 20 years later, we tell that story like it's funny, but not like she should feel embarrassed about it. Whereas right. like my family gaps are still stories that are like, no. Layton, I can't believe you did that. Yeah, my family does that too. And it's very hard. It's embarrassing. <laughs> and I, I take party in it, of course. Mm -hmm. Like I love to tell a story of my sister drinking too much wine and you know, yep. the whole thing. But like, I, I will also step back and say that I, what we're talking about is very normal mm -hmm. in terms mm -hmm. of like, I think it's a universal experience. Yeah. And I do think there's a level of awkwardness that is genuinely like how you feel, not so much what you did, mm -hmm. Actually, whether the room felt it or not, it's just like you felt it. But I will say that I think there are people, maybe not born awkward, like it's some inerrant nature thing, but but definitely born into families mm -hmm. who have a different mm -hmm. rhythm yeah. Yeah. than the rest of the world and are just a little awkward. <laughs> like mm -hmm. they, they don't quite, they just end a conversation or mm -hmm. they'll like, uh, so God love him. And I do, my former father-in-law will be like, oh, look, a plant. <laughs> and you're like, was that a question? Like, is, do you want to know what kind of plant it is? Mm -hmm. Or like, like he he would literally we would drive down the street and he would look out the window and go tree and you're like okay <laughs> like am i supposed to respond to you i mean this is for real and i i just yeah. genuinely didn't so i felt awkward mm -hmm. but and he was fine he was completely mm -hmm. like beautiful thing and i just was like i don't know what to do with you right now so i think there are just multiple layers to this <laughs> and like knowing his parents and knowing his personality he just didn't have chance like he really mm -hmm. like that is that was a completely acceptable sentence in right. his life and mm -hmm. you know people loved him for it i love him for it i also am like what what <laughs> yeah what yeah 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 <laughs> so moving on <laughs> so, Layton, i think you and i talk about this a lot in personal um and i i so what generation were you born into and do you identify with the description of it? And we can look those up if you want. Um, and I, I kind of brought this up because I think we use this a lot. Like we use the Enneagram, mm -hmm. like that I'm, I'm this and it helps to type me mm -hmm. in a, in like a way that I want to feel understood yeah. and put out there. Yeah. Well, and can I ask uh, if we can look it up if we want, but it might be interesting to have us each say what we think it means, you know, like yeah, because there yeah. might be some variations in how we interpret. So do you so, want to like, start? Because I know, I know what you are. <laughs> like, I think you're out of us. You have the, the like most precise category. It's true. I am pretty solidly in millennial territory. I uh, I was born in 1986, so I don't think there's any contesting the age line there. 
Um, and I would say most of the stereotypes that you hear about millennials, positive and negative, a, a large portion of those I really do fall into. I spend a significant amount of my life on social media and like pretty obsessively attached to my devices. I will uh, at least offer that I made a career out of it. So I mean, whatever. So uh, Love avocado toast for breakfast. I do, however, I will say, by the way, it's delicious. Weeks ago, and I was like, "Oh, this is what they're talking about." Yeah, you've been missing out. It's very good. Um, I will say, I mostly make it at home, Um, and you know, there are some stereotypes about millennials that a are really questions of class and privilege and all sorts of stuff. um, That so a way that I am an outlier from a stereotype that is oft projected onto my generation is that I never did live back at home after college. Mm. Um, and I frankly just got very lucky in that regard. I mean, my parents yeah. did also say you're never allowed to move back right. home. But yeah, Derek and I are already establishing that rule. Like it's yeah. just not. You're <laughs> That's gone. about how my parents did it. Yeah. 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 Um, so there are some, you know, I was a very, I was taught, we might get to this later, but I was taught very much to like, once you're out on your own, you're out on your own, do whatever you have to do. I spent my first year out of college making $11,000 a year in AmeriCorps, figuring out how to make it work. So like there are some things that I think I'm a little bit of an outlier on, but I've never felt, other than the like part where we've killed everything ever, I don't have a ton of objections. Right. Um, I will say I have three older siblings and my oldest siblings are, are cuspy. They kind of fall into that, solidly into that exennial category. Um, and growing, so I would not say that I can claim any of those characteristics, but I think I have a sensitivity for and an appreciation for Gen Xers and and Xennials that a lot of millennials and boomers do not because that's what I grew up around. And those are the people I love most in the world. So. Yeah. Now are your, your parents are boomers? Solidly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So Eric, what about you? Do you know? Yeah, I, I'm the oldest living millennial. Um, <laughs> I'm very proud of it. Um, you know, I might... <laughs> Layton almost spit out her beer on that one. I was watching it and I was like, oh, oh no, oh, it turns out okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, I'm, like, I'm on the cusp. Like, I was born in 1981, but I was like, Look, I read one article one time and it said 1981 to whatever. And I was like, sold. Um, <laughs> and like, yeah, I, it's interesting because uh, I, I, I do, as much as I identify with a lot of the Xennial or, or Gen X uh, cultural markers, um, you, you know, like I remember where I was when Kurt Cobain died, you know, mm-hmm. like it didn't really mean anything to me. Um, somebody stood up in, in our, our school assembly and was like, Kurt Cobain died. And we, recognize that and I was like okay and like that wasn't just part of my cultural understanding um uh, or cultural framework at the time but I do I've had multiple jobs um uh like my entire adult life I moved home after college um and uh and I think I really embraced this idea that uh, you know like the millennials ruining everything I, I I really like that. I'm like, like bring well, it on. Like some <laughs> things don't work. Yeah. You know? And it's like, yeah. if it's not working, then let's move on. Like, yeah. Oh, millennials killed the department store. Oh, okay. Well, like, what is the purpose of the department store? What is the purpose of, uh, you know, of, of, of all the things that, you know, the, the structures that were meant for people who could live off of one job that you're going to have mm-hmm. for 25 years and live in a, in a house on a cul-de-sac 
that costs a hundred thousand dollars. Those aren't realities for us. So, um, so why, why then do I have to be tied to JC Penney to prove that I value America? So, you know, I like, I see a lot of millennial culture talk online from people who are like eight, nine years younger than me. And I'm like, yes, yes, we are, we are the same. (laughs) <laughs> all of us. Yeah. I do. I, I too identify with, uh, you know, uh, Ariana Grande or whoever. Like, we are all the same person. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I like. We uh, wish so badly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the dream. And you're also, are you, do you identify so with Millennium? It's interesting. I, so there are competing theories here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born in 1980, about to hit 40 in two months. I'm very excited. We're going to celebrate at Layton's house. Yeah, we are. Um, and so, I, so some say Gen X goes through 1980. Some say it ends at 79. Mm-hmm. So the thing for me, one, I, I do identify as a Gen X partially, I think, because I'm the youngest of four. So okay. the siblings I grew up with mm-hmm. were born 75 to 79 and Mm -hmm. then me in 80. So I, I was solidly much more. And I I do think that makes a difference Oh, absolutely. as you're on the cusp. If you're the oldest or you're the youngest, I think it pushes you one way or the other. Yeah. But um, you know, so Gen Xers are the most entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. um, generation. Like it, like it wasn't for us. So Mm -hmm. we built it right. Mm -hmm. We're Mm -hmm. Facebook and you know, Silicon Valley, (coughs) like we went for it. Mm -hmm. Um, not all of that is positive, but mm-hmm. there it is, yeah. you know. Um, and yet, so the where I really identify, and Leighton, um, you call it the exennial, you know, I call it the Oregon Trail, right? So sure. it's the, the in-between, right? Mm-hmm. It's, so that's technically 75 to 85. Um, and again, I really do think it ha- depends on if you're, if you identify like with a grouping, like, yeah. Yeah. you know, mm-hmm. if you have siblings or whatever. So I fall much more into that category. So computers were part of, like, I had a computer in elementary school, mm-hmm. but I didn't have a personal home computer till I was 16, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, like, that, it wasn't so much part of my growing up as it was a thing. I took a computer class and mm-hmm. did all that. Um, I just, it's funny, we're just a year apart. Like, Kurt Cobain's death was the first celebrity death that had an impact on me. Mm-hmm. And again, part of that was I lived in a small town, mm-hmm. southern white, you know, mostly white. Um, we actually, it was interesting. I was on spring break in the car. My sister and I were um, listening to Indigata DeVita for some reason oh, wow. when like the news came on the radio. Mm-hmm. Like it was just that kind of time where you were re-embracing this hippie part of life. And, oh yeah, yeah. And he was part of that. He was mm-hmm. part of that grunge world and whatever. So I, I do very much identify there. Um, I'm not sure what I think the only difference there was the computers like that or not the only, but that was the big thing they lifted out of mm-hmm. like, you are a little bit separate from the Gen Xers because of the computer thing, which mm-hmm. let's be honest, like the personal computer has changed the world. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting when I look at my high school classmates, you know, um, uh, all of us born 80, 81, um, half of us have really embraced new industry, social media, like mm-hmm. living on our computers. Um, and half of us uh, have completely separated. Yes, from it, I agree. Know? My friends are the same way. Right, like no Facebook profile, yep. like no sort of relationship with Instagram, uh, you know, taking weird selfies, like the whole nine, you know? Yeah. 
versus yeah. some of us, you know, like I'm, I'm on Twitter all the time. Like, I can't right. believe I'm not on Twitter right now. My phone is on airplane mode and I'm like, something might be happening. I know. I'm on Twitter right now. I'm Don't worry. Mode, and I was like, you're just going to have to let go for an hour. Um, you know, it's what, fine. Nothing's happened. <laughs> <laughs> which I have, what's weird for me, I'll be really honest. So my, so my, my parents are boomers, solidly boomers. Right. But I have an uncle. My dad is the second of six and my, his youngest brother, youngest sibling is only 18 years older than I am. So he and I are in the same generation, oh, interesting. which is really interesting. And so like generationally, I connect with my uncle kind of more than my dad does, mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. again, with, with that much space, my dad was 14 when he was born. Like there's, they grew up with very different times, yeah. different people, different, yeah, you know, whatever. Right. But it is an interesting, and as these generations get smaller, if you will, it's going to be really right. interesting for us. But I, well, I, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say one thing that's kind of come up in our conversation that I think, you know, I think there's a broader and a more micro version of this. I think broadly is there are all these different um, sort of, I don't know if categories, markers that we use, right? Like who was your first celebrity death that meant something, your first big news story, all these things like your, and like a big one that they talk about a lot in generational theory in terms of shrinking generations, right, is is technology development, right? And so they talk about these micro generations that, you know, started out with the kind of computer you were interfacing with, right? Um, and like what its capabilities are um, and, or were. And then for a while, I was going to say now, but I'm probably outdated now. I don't know what it is now. But when I was in my mid-20s teaching middle school students, like the thing they talked about was social media evolution, right? And so like, if you're on Facebook and that is your primary mode of interfacing, that places you in one micro generation. And if it's Snapchat, that places you in another. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just way, I had to turn Maggie down for Snapchat the other day. Aww. I was like, I don't trust it. I don't mm -hmm. know what it is. Yeah. I'm an old lady and I don't care. Yeah. No, I, I, I was like, I, 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 so I gave her Instagram. I was like, you can have Instagram. She was like, okay, mom. I, mean, that's a, I, <laughs> I, I, I look, I mean like not that I am, I don't have any nickel in this uh, dollar, but I'm like, that makes sense. Because I have all these like 21, 24 year old friends who won't text me, but will Snapchat Yeah, I don't me. get it, I'm sorry. And then I'm always like, and I feel so ancient because I'm always like, was this to me? Or was this <laughs> for everyone? Is this a Speak up, boy, I can't hear you. Yeah. Oh, what's, so how do I, I made my, and like, I, they, we went out the other night, um, and I, uh, with a bunch of them, me and my husband and a couple of the, our younger friends, and like, they were critiquing my little uh, uh, Bitmoji character, because mm. it looks like Sam Sanders, and like, I'm, I'm a, a black man with a, a shaved head, and Sam Sanders hosts an NPR show. Um, it looks like his bitmoji, and I was like, we're essentially the same person. And they're like, this doesn't look like you. So then they had to fix my bitmoji for me, and I was like, okay, this feels like I've moved into the retirement home. Right. And I'm, they're like, they're like, granddad, you got to button your shirt different. It's the future now. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> By the way, I just need to point out as I like tried to build an Xbox profile for Derek so he can play, you know, online with our son. Finding like me's like that mm -hmm. which dates me i know for black men is yeah. very hard thank you okay especially yes. with shaves head like yeah. i was like i none of these look like you so i'm going with this one because at least you'll be flattered right yeah like, I, feel like, I feel like our visual under our visual it's vocabulary still made, yeah. is like, <laughs> to a different 
standard where there are some kinds of people where I'm like, that is exactly you. I can yeah. recognize you at a thousand paces. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I just, but like, I'm like, we all look like Gordon from Sesame Street. Like, yes, like, yes, like, yes. But also I want to teach people how to take a selfie. Cause there's also people that like take it at their forehead. And yeah. I'm like, no, 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 you gotta like, you can't do that and mm-hmm. tilt this way. And I just want to say all those people are on dating apps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They, well, I don't know. I, I see that I have to be, admit my complete privilege that I've never had to be on a dating app and I'm ever? thankful for it ever. Oh my God. Ever. Wow. Well, this is the problem when you get married at 23 okay, well, yeah. and then yeah. you get divorced at 35 and then you marry your best friend. So, you know, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> like you Very just nice keep going line. through your best friends. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, you're next. No. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I do want to point out, too, though, a part of my foundational generational upbringing is I grew up in Kentucky in the 80s in a Southern Baptist church in the midst of the rise of right-wing Christianity, uh, right? Mm-hmm. And, and in the midst of the rise of megachurch, like true, yeah. like every town having a megachurch. Mm-hmm. And like that doesn't get put in these generational things yeah. but if you're a church person mm-hmm. that is a thing <laughs> absolutely like and that changed my whole like Layton you were in middle school and having one conversation I'm learning about um born again you know abstinence and whatnot and I'm right. going I'm 12 <laughs> this is inappropriate mm-hmm, <laughs> like mm-hmm. and, and yet there was this obsession oh, yeah. with aligning yourself with these political beliefs and I mean now I very much align myself and my Christianity with political de- beliefs, but I feel that they're absolutely fundamentally rooted in justice and mm-hmm. understanding of walking a, a life. <laughs> yeah. No, I like, I, uh, I grew up uh, in the Baptist church um, uh, and, and it was interesting. It's interesting you point that out. I write, I write about this moment in my book a little bit um, where- Here for it, how to save America or whatever it is. <laughs> How to save your soul. Shannon, you gotta work on that. I gotta work on those things. Just search for here for it. You'll find it. Um, no, but like there was this moment, um, a development in the in the '90s where it went from being this small one room church um, that had like you know rooted uh, was rooted in like black evangelical uh, thinking, uh, where we started like visiting all these other like sort of huge churches mm. and going to like these like like abstinence revivals, I had to sign a little card or something. Oh, I had to sign, oh my God, right? don't even get me started. I had to, uh, <laughs> and like, you know, there was this, oh, there's just, you know, it was the rise of Christian pop music. So DC Talk was huge, mm-hmm. yes. but then also like, the devil will come through your speakers as so go home and break all your CDs, which I did, you know. Oh, we've had the, I think I've said this on the show, like we would go on a mission trip or a trip. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it was something stupid, like a ski trip. Mm-hmm. And the youth minister would come by and look through the music oh, we wow. brought. Mm-hmm. And we were not allowed to buy, buy anything or bring anything that wasn't approved. Oh, yeah. Music. Yeah, I mean, like, and it got, it got, it was almost like we were, there was an attack happening that like the language was like, we have to batten down the hatches. Like you gotta like destroy, like Prince is coming for you. Ugh. Janet Jackson is coming for you. Like, Who like, the- please do, absolutely, right. come at <laughs> me. Right. I am here, come on, bring it right. on. It was wild. And then with the, uh, the, uh, with the sort of, the conversation around the AIDS crisis sort of reached the church mm-hmm. at a certain point. And, um, and looking at the way that that conversation sort of developed both around like a fear of, of LGBTQ people and also within the black community, 
like that really sort of for me defined a real pivot in um, uh, and and a shift uh, uh, a split between myself um, and you know my generation and the older generation of church leadership. Yeah, and I yeah, go ahead, Layton. Well. I was just going to say, it's interesting. I did not, I mean, you know, I grew up Presbyterian um, and specifically grew up in a Presbyterian church that like was the quintessential white suburban affluence, like potentially politically diverse, but like never was going to talk about anything controversial mm-hmm. sort of upbringing. So like, I don't, ta- I have vague memories of um, amendment, whatever it was in the Presbyterian church that introduced the chastity clause. Uh, I remember being 106 B. I still remember it. Wow. Did you say G 106 B? E 6.0106 B. Okay. That tags a little bit. I never could have conjured it, but so it started in for, I just want to non-Presbyterian listeners. Um, <laughs> I just want to say, so that was the, you know, the ordination clause against ordaining gay and lesbian and LGBTQ peoples. Um, to any office, right? Minister, ruling elder, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it was actually not passed in our constitution until 1996. Yeah, surprise, was not always on It wasn't the always there. And so people actually were like ordained. Mm-hmm. Now they weren't out necessarily, right. but like churches knew and presbyteries mm-hmm. knew and people knew, but like suddenly in 96, they were, uh, you know, not allowed to be. Mm-hmm. So anyway- yeah, well, and so in my church, I I remember hearing that phrasing thrown around and zero conversation about it, right? Like, um, and so I don't have, other than the fact that I went to a summer camp run by the guy who founded Chick-fil-A, which, so there, it was deeply Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that stuff. But other than that, my upbringing is not marked in similar ways with this kind of like overt sort of religious interference um and a lot of the things that a lot of the really conservative religious views that shaped me sort of came to me i don't know how to explain i i try to explain to people how i knew that it was wrong to be queer how i knew that it was wrong to be queer when i was a kid right and all i can think is i remember in my family that we used to watch ellen's show Mm -hmm, like all the time right and then she came out and then we didn't watch it anymore. And like, it's funny how those things, like I was so far from coming out then. I mean, I didn't come out until I was 25. Um, and yet I couldn't tell you anything else about television at that point in the nineties, but I remember that exact moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a small tangential question. I want to give us too far off topic, but I really want to know how the food was at the summer camp that was founded <laughs> by the guy from Chick-fil-A. An excellent question. And uh, just to say right off the bat, uh, on Sundays, Truett Cathy, the founder, would come preach, and then we would all get free Chick-fil-A. That's amazing. Uh, it was pretty great. The rest of the week, the the camp um, was held at Barry College in Rome, Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, which is this like tiny religious college, um, which I have heard is sort of a cult unto itself. Um, and so it was like, you know, dining hall food okay. most of the time. But we did get the Chick-fil-A with the sweet tea and all that and you were the only people in the nation who were getting chick-fil-a on On sunday Sunday. i know i know it's like you wonder where they go on sundays they go to my summer you gotta (laughs) order that tray ahead of time so they get sunday off with their family for religious things as long as it's his religious thing right (laughs) a little loophole there right don't want to derail but i'm very interested in food yeah no that's i mean i i've 
I struggle with the Chick-fil-A and the Wendy's boycott because Wendy's doesn't pay their tomato farmers. And like, man, I miss the Baconator so bad. Mm. I'm not going to lie. So um, <laughs> moving on. I know I could have a whole episode about how I feel about Chick-fil-A because it's frankly pretty complicated. <laughs> it, it is complicated. Sure. And, you know, Leighton and I share a very good friend who, has, who is um, married to a woman who... And, and she has very complicated feelings on the issue as well. She's like, I really do care more about do you pay a fair, fair, pay a fair wage and give health insurance. And I'm like, I get that. But also, come on. <laughs> um, anyway, we're liberal. We have to have our things. There are hills that we're going to die on. Um, what were you taught growing up that you needed to succeed Many of us were taught, work hard and get a degree and you will be earned or re be rewarded. That's a direct quote from my father, by the way. Mm. Um, has that worked for you? Is it working for people today? And what unique challenges are people facing to survive and even flourish economically today? And I want to say to me, this was very much related to that generational issue question. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the two are very tied and I just want to jump in. So my <coughs> parents, I have, my parents divorced when I was two and I have one who is drowning in debt mm. and always will be like, doesn't mm. under, is a compulsive shopper, doesn't understand. I, I'm estranged from her, but this is her MO her whole life. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then my, my father who was save, you know, save, 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 mm -hmm. like, and taught me good practices, but just doesn't, God love him, understand the financial reality that my family has had to deal with mm. compared to his family right. at right. the same ages, right? right? right. Um, and that percentage wise, like, or due to inflation and whatever, what he was getting paid out of college and what I was getting paid out of college were astronomically different. And he just kind of chalks that up to like, well, because you went into a nonprofit world and that was, mm. that was your bad. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that's yeah. okay. My bad. I'll take it. But you know, I'll be very honest. You know, we're a quote unquote, um, very typical middle-class family drowning in debt mm -hmm. and not, not making it. Mm -hmm. And yet we're very successful people with jobs and benefits mm -hmm. and quote unquote successful. Right. right? And, we just can't make it in today's world. It's right. hard. Well, I mean, like, you know, you look at our parents' generation getting under, like, getting underneath of debt, what, you know, your options were, like, uh, you know, you could, you could drown in a mortgage, but, like, it was a lot harder back then, I think, to, to, to really get underwater with a mortgage. And getting credit card debt, and I think a lot of people um, uh, in the 80s and 90s did find themselves, like, like with credit card debt, because, you know, I, I think I'm experiencing this myself, like, I got my first credit card, ran it up. Right. And then I was like, oh, I don't have a plan for this. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. This it's is free money. money. <laughs> but like, we live in a world, and we've always, like, since college, we've lived in a world. One, we've lived in a world of billionaires, which has made everything different. Oh, right. Um, and two, we live in a world where, like, student loan debt can be so, so huge, where the, uh, you, can, you can get this super expensive degree to be able to work in the nonprofit world where the income uh, predictions are, are, are so much smaller, you know, like mm -hmm. you have like a master's degree to be like a, you know, program director at a nonprofit uh, and make $50,000. Um, you're, you know, you can be under a million dollars worth of debt, you know, yeah. and be to be qualified. Like, yeah. And that's just the reality. 
I recently had a friend, he was getting out of a <coughs> second master's in computer science. And he, he was honestly asking me and mm -hmm. he said, I don't, I don't, I need some advice. Like I'm about to go into a career in computer science and I'm going to get paid $80,000 a year. Is $80,000 just not much these days mm. or are people really wasting their money? That's a good question. And it was a great question. And I was like, actually, I really appreciate you asking me. I have a like, cause you know, I, I make more, Derek and I especially combined make more money than our parents could ever dream mm -hmm. of making. And so mm -hmm. I, I do understand the perplexity, right? Like technically we make all this money, but mm -hmm. you're not making it. I don't understand. I, I, I am like, I get it mentally. My heart hurts about right. it because I want to be understood more mm -hmm. than anything else in the world. <laughs> right. Please understand me and love me and care for me, you know? Um, Yes, please. Just everyone. I appreciate that. Thank you. I love you and I care for you. Thank you. We got it on tape. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I'm forget what I was saying. $80,000. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, this happens to me sometimes. So I've, we're, we're finishing the wine, by the way, in case you were wondering at home. So, and I said to him, I said, I'm going to tell you right now, you know, yes, pay down your student loans. Mm -hmm. Absolutely do that. Yes, save for a house, do that. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you can prevent yourself from going into credit card debt, yeah. do it. Yeah. Like, do, like I'm telling you, that was the end of my, like, <clears throat> I did it for childcare. Mm -hmm. um, I started, so I, I had the, I got the credit card in college. I ran up about $1,500 mm -hmm. and I was like, oh shit. Like I don't have 15, I was in yeah. college. I didn't have $1,500. Yeah. No income. And I literally, I didn't, I had nothing. And I literally put it away mm -hmm. and I like 30, $40 at a time. And it took me a few years and I was, I was able to do that. I got a job in the, mm -hmm. you know, music school office and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I did, and I worked it down and, and I, I thought that I'd learned a good lesson, mm -hmm. you know, and then I had kids yeah. and, and I'll be really honest. And my husband was in law school and it, our our credit card equivalent by the time he was out of law school was I mean it was equivalent to what we paid for childcare mm. you know but I had I had shifted money from one to the other and mm -hmm. then we were like we'll develop a plan we'll right. pay it down and you know what life just doesn't work that way anymore no, right no. it just doesn't and by the way all of you friends listening to this somebody should tell you because nobody told me divorce screws you financially mm. and that's not a reason not to get divorced what do you say Layton? I learned that from you, actually. I know. It's like, it's a hard story, but somebody needs to tell you, so I'm telling you. <laughs> well, and it's, I think that, um, you know, I feel like there's a lot in this question that we started with, so I'm trying yeah, to sorry, and I probably, like, went away. Thank you for my moment of personal privilege to complain <laughs> well, about all of I, that. I think you went where it should go, which is that, I mean, you know, I do think it's worth talking about like the norms that we're taught about achievement, but as the child of boomer parents who are white, um, fairly privileged folks, I mean, and I have to, well, I don't have to, I actually don't know if I should do this, but I always feel like qualifying that like my parents grew up with plenty of privilege and benefits, but not, I mean, they definitely grew up working class, but my, the entirety of my childhood they were relatively affluent, like upper middle class folks. Yeah. Um, and so it was this weird, and, and I should say by my parents in that case, I mean my mom and my stepdad. My dad, who was very involved in my life, um, 
and grew up in a similar financial situation to both my mom and my stepdad, um, has been in financially dire straits for the entirety of my life, like at its most extreme, um, homeless and in all sorts of like financial and medical debt and all sorts of stuff. Um, which has frankly, a, I think the biggest contributor that all of that had on me is that I'm neurotic about money and like have deep seated anxiety issues about a safety net and other people's financial practices and all sorts of stuff. But in terms of success, I do think I was taught to a certain extent, um, if you're willing to work hard enough, um, for, and like take some blows in terms of like working for less than you really deserve all these things like that eventually it will pay out that eventually you will um benefit and you know in some ways that really has worked out for me and it's largely worked out because i am white and came from that background like i would say the biggest way that i have seen kind of unexpected way that i have seen the privilege of my upbringing bear fruit in my adult success is is not like any of these really tangible like I don't get financial support from my family right like I don't have like a trust fund that I dip into but but I do know how to work a room full of really wealthy people like because I grew up in a country club like I mean it's it sounds ridiculous but it's like you just when you're eight and you learn how to talk to somebody who's the CEO of a company like that helps you later Um, because you don't feel out of place and like that going back to just to bring it full circle to our earlier conversation about awkwardness, not feeling awkward in those spaces makes a lot of difference. Um, so I think, yeah, so there's that, I think like a lot of my success, I would like to say that I've worked hard and I have, um, but you know, I think there are a lot of contributing factors and it's also true that like by many measurements, I am really successful, right? Like I have an advanced degree and I have managed to save in a generation that doesn't have a lot of that. I mean, it's not a ton, but I have some, you know, I purchased my own home as a single adult, like all these things. And like I went to the ER three weeks ago and now I don't know what's happening with my savings account. I mean, it's it's also precarious and like, you know, it just doesn't, I don't have a retirement fund. I mean, I have like $700 in my retirement fund. So it's all like what, you know, there's success and there's stability um, and how those two things interact with one another and like what they look like for people. Something can look like success on the outside and still be pretty tenuous on the inside, you know? And I don't know if that's like a, the time we live in thing. It sounds like maybe it is. Um, but it's, it's been really frustrating for me, like just recently sitting down and being like, I have done everything I could do, mm-hmm. frankly, to like shore up a safety net and to like be grateful for, you know, the advantages I've had and try to do good things with them and like, all, you know, be smart, be mindful. And, you know, it takes one, I have good insurance. And even so, like it takes one medical emergency to like mm-hmm. endanger all of that. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. I feel like the ideas of the idea of success and the idea of uh, this sort of like uh, a a terror around disaster are like are go hand in hand. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I don't like I I don't know where that comes from, sort of like in a larger scale. But, you know, I can look at sort of my own history and like the things I talk about in therapy every week, you know, and I'm like, oh, I know where that comes from. 
Um, yeah. like, but I also think, you know, my parents taught us, it was very clear that education was deeply important. My father was the first person on his side of the family to go to college. His father had, uh, he was a pastor, his father was a pastor and had, you know, some, one year he had like 11 uh, w, uh, W2s, you know, cause he had like mm-hmm. all these like little side jobs, mm-hmm. you know? Um, uh, I don't, like my, none of my grandparents ever made very much money. And so, you know, my parents were, um, set, got, afforded the opportunity to go to college, um, and, uh, try to make good on that. And then they have, they in turn gave us the opportunity to go to private school, which I think speaks to your point lately, right. being able to move through different spaces. I think my ability to understand how to talk to people who make much more money than me has done so much more. And I don't like, I think my parents probably wanted us to understand different social classes and, and understand white people, you know, in general. Um, yeah. But I think they were also like, well, education is the key out of this prison. We lived in, we lived in uh, the ghetto, you know, and uh, uh, there, is no, there is no road out of there, um, except perhaps maybe education. At the same time though, I saw as I was like, getting, as, like, starting to apply for colleges and whatnot, I saw their parents' health failing, saw mm-hmm. that they had no safety net. Right. Um, they, like, they'd lived on the margins of society their whole lives, they had nothing. Um, but because they were, uh, I guess, you know, my parents' parents, I guess, were great generation. Um, and, you know, they, like, they managed to, like, have these little houses or whatever. Um, but, like, the house goes away. Um, there's no, ins- you know, there's no long-term care insurance. Um, they're thrown into these, not thrown into, but they have to go into these homes. Um, and so the, for me, as much as I'm like, I've got an education and, you know, I can move through the world. I'm also sort of like, I have walked through the world with this, the belief that there's no, that success is never, I won't know that I've succeeded until I get to the end of my life. And I'm not like, like sitting in a nursing home with like right. six other people. You know, yeah, like, like eating Salisbury steak that's three days old. You right? Know? No, that's yeah, you know? it is terrifying. I I talked badly about my former father-in-law earlier, but I'll tell another story about him. He he said to me one day we were talking about you know they're now retired and whatever, but that happened post you know me. But years ago we were talking about this, and he I said you know. I don't rely on social security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, you don't yeah. like, I'm sure Layton feels <laughs> like, yeah. like that is not, I get this statement once a year and mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, y'all, y'all are crazy. Right? Like that is not going to happen yeah. for me. Amen. And he, it's, it is, it's imaginary money. And mm-hmm. he looked at me and he said, over my dead body. And I said, that's right. right. <laughs> like, no, that's right. You're yeah. literally going to, like, mm-hmm. your generation is going to take it all away. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that because you didn't pay into it and you right. don't deserve your money, but I'm paying into it and I'm not going to see my money. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. I do, it's a freaking miracle. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I just don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. And I said, now, I want to be able to save that I can't, like, I can't count on it, mm-hmm. but I also can't do that, you know? I had a parishioner come to me in tears. She had seen her financial advisor and they said, you have to put aside 20% of your income every year for retirement. And she said, how am I supposed to do that and live and raise children and, you know, live in this world? I mean, I also see them sell their property, at least again, my privileged parents selling property for and making 
thousands. Mm -hmm. I mean, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands sometimes mm -hmm. on their house. Mm -hmm. And their property was such an investment for them mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s, right? Especially in the 80s. Yeah. Like um, the stories they tell of like putting $1,000 in a savings account and getting 25% mm -hmm. growth on it. And I'm like, <laughs> what world do you, I get like 0.025% <laughs> right. on my savings account. Right. Like I get three cents for $10,000. Like right. y'all are insane. Not that I have $10,000. I'm just using that. As <laughs> if I had $10,000, you know, it would be in an account, but you know, like yeah. this kind of idea and and I'm terrified and I hate to end on this kind of note, but like, I'm terrified. It it here we go. Like we're actually getting darker. The sun is going down. <laughs> like Eric and I are getting darker and darker. Um, and I, and I think, I mean, I'll just, I just want to bring it back around a little bit. Like I, at the same time in all of this, right. Like I really do go back to my faith in the sense of like, okay, all of this is just, it's all pretend. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I hate to say it that way. This is real. This burdens me on a daily basis. But it's also all pretend. Yeah. Like, this is a myriad of structure of a society that we've all agreed to play into, whether we want to or not, we've all agreed to it. And we're all participating in it. And and there's just a part of me that's like, this really isn't where my hope and my salvation lie. Mm. And, and not that like, oh, Jesus will provide, like, I'm mm -hmm. not, you know, like God will provide and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, God will provide. Yeah. And like, yeah. we will figure this out mm -hmm. and we have tools and help and we'll move forward. We'll mm -hmm. figure it out. That's what helps me to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. What wakes me up is all the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, I think to your point, Shannon, for me, if I'm going to offer my like sort of faith two cents on that, uh, last week I preached on um, the parable of the wicked tenants, um, which I've already largely forgotten the actual scripture, but <laughs> they, I know that the point is that they essentially feel like they've taken the care of the land for so long that it feels like it belongs to them. And so when the landowner's son comes, they're like, let's kill them and keep the lands. Like it's ours. We're taking care of it. And like, you know, I'm big on not treating this life as a waiting room. <laughs> like yeah. this, is, yeah. this is what we get and like valuing it and, and working, you know, I don't know, like appreciating what I have, but I do think that like in some ways it's easier for me to forget when I feel like I have not enough mm -hmm. that what I have also isn't really mine. Right. Like that, like yes. I could be not alive at all. And instead I am. And so like everything that has found its way into my hands um, is a gift for me to decide, you know, do I approach it with fear? Do I approach it with generosity? Like, you know, um, that's on my best days. <laughs> like you said, those are the things that like, you know, I preach that and I, I, I work for a fairly wealthy congregation. And so like, I, for, I will own that. I went into that sermon thinking this is good for y'all to hear. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. And I like walked away and I was like, this was good for me. I needed to hear this. Yeah. Like that, you know, that I, to have anything is in its own way an abundance. And certainly from a perspective of like being American, you know, being where I'm at, like it is truly an abundance, but trying to keep, keep in mind that like, I don't know, this sort of base level 
gratitude and generosity mostly helps. And then, yeah, like you said, the things, I mean, you know, then uh, something happens. And I think for all of us, like I have to pull back also and say, you know, I believe that (coughs) the, the work that we do as individuals on ourselves is next to godliness. Right. Mm -hmm. And that the survival Mm-hmm. sometimes is success, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, I think there are a lot of people that look at my life and our life and say, well, they're clearly very successful. I've been truly blessed that I'm going on 15 years now, I've had a full-time ministry job. Like mm-hmm. not everybody can say that. And I do not take that for granted at all. Mm-hmm. And, and yet for me, when you say, like when, if someone were to ask me, like, how have you been successful? my inward journey Mm -hmm. is way more the rooting of my success than those 15 years of ministry. Mm -hmm. And so like, I, I, I feel judged and whether that's put upon myself or whether that's actually happening by other people about my money and my debt and all of these things, I really do hold fast to this, like, but I am alive and I am healthy mm-hmm. and I am teaching my children who are healthy, mm-hmm. compassionate human beings in the world. Not that you have to have children to have worth. Like I'm really not saying that either or to be successful. It's just, we all like, I have friends that feel that they are loved and mm-hmm. gracious and kind. Mm-hmm. And, and that to me is where I value success, which may be a generational difference as well, mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. there it is. And I, I think that's gospel. Like for me, that's where gospel lies. What's been interesting to me, like, you know, my husband is a piece of the same pastor and um, I, it it provides such a, his career and his life provides such an interesting counterpoint. You know, like I'm, you know, I I work in New York media. Like I, I write about pop culture and fashion and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be successful, quote unquote, in these, um, very uh these fields that are very very tuned into capitalism like mm-hmm. i'm really really mm-hmm. like i'm you know, how many clicks do you get how uh, many yeah, likes do you have exactly. how many people brought you to the page you exactly know? yeah and like which god know. bless you because i would be like i don't care right well, I mean, like, <laughs> and like and it needs to matter so that i can have certain things but yeah it's like, that's not to say that's not important no, i just yeah i mean like i but also it like watching him work with his congregation and talk about talk to people about their fears about like the next, the last 20 years of their lives, mm-hmm. watching mm-hmm. Uh, try and bring in families and let them know that they are at home, watching the church grow um, and knowing that the safety net is not how much money each individual has, but the safety net is, is there somebody that you can call in your congregation, in your life, in your family, who will come to the hospital and hold your hand, who will uh, uh, take you to the hospital, who mm-hmm. will give you advice when your child won't stop crying. That is, you know, and that's, when I think back on my life, you know, I think, you know, a lot of the things that I write about and think about was the experience of, uh, uh, of, of poverty when I was a child, but I felt constantly like we had already succeeded because, um, and if maybe it feels, tri- maybe it sounds trite, but it's true. Like I felt loved. I felt cared yeah. for mm-hmm. every day, you know? And, uh, yeah, we wanted things. I wanted, sure. you know, like Fruit Loops, and I couldn't get Fruit Loops. We got, you know, whatever. Um, I wanted, you know, I, I wanted a, like a fancy watch, like my friends. But what I got was a, a safety net and a support. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, like, 
there's different level qualities of those safety nets. Like I would like to get to the end of my life and, and not have to, you know, really worry about uh, like, <laughs> can I eat today? You know? Yeah. Like, you don't want to hustle at the end of your life. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know? and, right. like, and like my father's mother was very, very poor, you know, living in our house, had, had no money. I would like to not have that experience, but she still lived in our house. And I still right. got to have a relationship with her. Mm-hmm. Um, we still took care of her to the very end of her life. So, you know, and she, and she went, she had a church community um, that she was a part of through the end of her life, you know, and they showed up at her funeral um, and they supported us. Well, and I'll say, I mean, this is sort of my cap on that too, is um, from a different perspective that, uh, and this is borne out statistically, I believe, you know, this last year has probably been the most financially insecure of my established adult life. So first few years of AmeriCorps notwithstanding. Mm. Um, You know, I lost my full-time job and have been cobbling together various part-time jobs and what have you. And that has required me to not be able to like uh, run my budget in the way that I have previously. And what I have found like to my shock and wonder is that I have been more generous in the last year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So even just with friends, like, you know, like, yeah, let me grab this dinner, you know? And, and what I, what it has taught me, I mean, there's a privilege in that to have that level of like, yes, I'm financially insecure, but there are still moments that I can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also has taught me that like, I don't know, it's always easy to believe you don't have enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Start to share. It's amazing how much it turns out that like you have more and more to share than you ever thought you did. Yes. Um, and so I hope, you know, whatever else the future brings financially that I can like hold on to that lesson and, um, you know, weigh that against my financial anxiety for my upbringing and continue to be, uh, broader thinking and, in, in how to share what I have and yeah, trust. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and I just, I'll just give one more, like trusting, in a plan I set out and in this and not like, and it's going to change and it's not going to be perfect trusting in my family. Mm -hmm. And that is not just blood for me, you know? Um, And the trust, the self trust that I've learned of empowerment, right. Of, of truly like, there's no, I mean, my mother who is in a lot of debt, like plays the lottery on a regular basis. And still to this day, I'm sure I haven't talked to her in years, but like plays the, she played my growing up, she played the lottery twice a week without the money to necessarily do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, a little bit, um, but truly believed that was going to save her, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, and for me to be able to step, (laughs) step back and, you know, say like, I, I have some control Mm -hmm. and I have some ability Mm -hmm. and I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do my best. Mm -hmm. And I'm also going to just accept that this is happening and, you know, be able to move on. But, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. getting out of debt isn't going to save my life. Like it's Mm -hmm. not going to, you know, whatever. And I am genuinely grateful that we have a healthy and happy family and that we have jobs and Mm -hmm. that we, I mean, pray that we continue to have jobs. And, you know, there have been times with my spouses that that hasn't been the case. And, and mm-hmm. that, that has been a lesson in worth and success as well. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. those moments where one of us didn't have a job. Um, and, and all of those are moments of growth. So again, I just, I think that that's great. Good for us. Good for us. Yay, yes. us. <laughs> 
Jesus loves you. Um, <laughs> and you. Um, a big thank you to our special guest, Leighton, and our Eric Thomas. Thank you. We just call him Eric, but there's another Eric Thomas, so we have to call him our Eric Thomas. Yeah, he wants nothing to do with my nonsense. May God bless his soul. Yeah, he's lovely. He's great. Sure. There's a Derek Weston something. Mm. I forget what his last name is. Oh, he will know. But yeah, he's a beautiful poet. He's mm -hmm. super hot, so you should look him up. Um, not as hot as my Derek Weston, by the way. Um, but we'd like to thank the originator of Pub Theology, who came up with our questions, Brian Burkoff, who's running for Congress. Go, Brian. God love you and bless you. Um, and to Derek Weston, our producer. Connect and spread the word on social media. Listen anytime on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Watch us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram TV. Uh, sign up at patreon.com slash ptlive for more content. If you would like to create a pub theology face-to-face -face in your town, go to pubtheology.com slash directory for more information. And until next time, friends, drink responsibly and keep those conversations flowing.
clearly I did not drink responsibly, so I couldn't say that part at the end. <laughs> Whatever. It's, it's as smooth as, as any smooth. Podcast. It was like a little hiccup. <laughs> I, you know, I've been on a podcast sober, and you are as smooth <laughs> as anybody. Else. So I don't think. Do you want? Here, yeah, sure. I don't think I've told this story before. So I I grew up in Kentucky, which is um, educational wise like forty eight or forty nine out of the states. God mm-hmm. bless Mississippi. Um, so I didn't actually learn to read till the fourth grade, um, because I am a, and still to this day, I am so good at visual learning Mm -hmm. that like whatever the teacher said, I just absorbed. Mm -hmm. And I had three older siblings that just read to me and like, I didn't like, I knew the word, like some of the like basics, you know, but I didn't know how to read. And I would, I would look like those logs. Did you have those logs? Like the books that you opened and you had to read the essay and then anyway, whatever. Um, I don't, I, they were called something. I can see them, right? <laughs> this is my, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so I would actually, I would skip to the questions and I would look at the questions and then find that same phrase like in the essay. Oh, interesting. And I would copy down whatever it was. So that's how I got to the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And finally, my teacher like called my parents and was like, she doesn't know how to read. Mm. And so it like after fourth grade, I like my grades significantly improved. <laughs> They're like, wait a minute. They're like, hey. What if is reading important? Is reading important? But I love it. Like, but I'm so, so self conscious about it, uh, and I literally like read in public for a living. Right. <laughs> yeah, like I'm like, okay, if you like, if you, like, <laughs> this is not the career. Like, and right. Like, Let me but let me tell you, you're the, like, how many persons that said, well, Shannon, maybe you shouldn't be a minister. But and then, I'm like, but, but I'm so good at it. Clearly, you're very good at it. It's, it's your calling and you're supposed to do it. It's amazing. It's like, I just feel like, you know, my, my mother, I don't think she'll mind me saying this. My mother uh, is, is, is dyslexic. I have a brother who's dyslexic. Um, and I don't think she would mind. Hopefully you won't. Um, uh, well, there's like seven people that see this part, so it's fine. Okay. Well, <laughs> when this goes viral, you're uh-huh. gonna, I'm going to come back to your This house. is the Patreon listener part. Right. So, well, hello and thank you. Um, <laughs> but in David, my husband is also dyslexic. And so like I'm, I am, I spent my whole life in awe of, of people who push through and find other ways of, of knowing and learning. But I also, but I think that's all of us, you know, yeah. like there's this idea yes. that everybody sits down, opens the book, reads it, takes a note, learns it. That's not the way I learn. Yeah. And that's not the way any, I mean, some people learn that way, but we learning, the idea of learning intelligence, there are so many different ways of coming at it. And it's just sort of like, yeah, if you are finding the phrase, like when you said it, finding the phrases in the essays and recopying, I'm like, that's brilliant. Right. (laughs) I was like, I survived on that. Well, and what's really interesting for me, (laughs) I learned to read music Mm -hmm. before I learned to read words, Mm. like well. And when Mm. you read music, if you're a musician, you actually read ahead. Like as you're playing this measure, you're actually looking at the the next measure, the next two measures mm-hmm. to know where you're going. And when I read, I, I still do that, which is why I get tripped up on words. Mm-hmm. I'll skip two or three words ahead and then like, I'm sorry, blah, 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 yeah. you know, to get there. Um, which is part of the reason why I don't read manuscript sermons because mm. I don't, I don't do it as well as I do just mm-hmm having conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have an outline if, and my choir is always like, why don't you even bring up the outline? You don't even look at it. I'm like, mm. just in case. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because I also have memory issues. If you didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things happening. What was I saying? I have literally said that during a sermon. They're like, you're saying this. And I was like, Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> right. 
like I like I have trouble like reading aloud because I do the same thing. My mm-hmm. like, my my eyes skip ahead, and like it's interesting. I was talking to the publicist for my book, and uh, I was like talking about reading at book signings and I was like I'd rather I'd rather not read and she's like you should probably read from your book and I was like mm-hmm, I don't know um, <laughs> and I was like yeah can we like, play the audiobook uh, like sound right <laughs> and like I'll just stand there <laughs> I was just like you know I'm like I you know I just make all these typos I'm like you know I'm a disaster she's like you know I, I noticed you skip words a lot when you write and like it's just like and I, I I'm at a point where I'm like that is what it is, you know? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes the brain is running at a faster speed than the fingers or the rest of the brain. Yes. And like, maybe, look, call me an idiot if you want to. That's fine. Sorry about it. You know, I'm an idiot walking through the world trying to make uh, things happen. Well, and I think, I mean, you know, I think one of the best things about adulthood is that like you get to a point where you figure out how to make your way on your own terms. Like what is yeah. it that works for you, right? Like, you know, I learned to read really early, but like, I have pretty intense ADD. And so like my life is full of these coping mechanisms that I developed, you know, starting in middle school about like, yeah, you know, and so I have, you know, I use a manuscript, but I have all these different, I don't know. I have, I have my own sort of like, uh, tricks, you know, that I use to, to do what is supposed to be normal, but in like a way that's applicable to me. And I feel like the thing is you eventually realize everybody has those things. They exactly. just yeah. Exactly. Like Derek says he can actually tell when I'm having a different conversation in my head, when I'm second guessing myself, like mm. whatever I'm saying, mm-hmm. he's like, you can tell because you're, you just, cause it, I, and I describe it. I did it in a coaching. I was coaching somebody earlier today and I said, you know, one of the things that's exhausting about preaching is that you're constantly sending out this like sonar signal of like, how is this being received Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what are they doing? And what, and there's just this constant like feeling emotion Mm -hmm. that at least in my opinion, if you're doing preaching, right. Right. If you don't care, then (laughs) that's a whole nother thing. Right. Like, but you're constantly checking in with Mm -hmm. people. Um, like you probably do that storytelling too. You're constantly checking in of like, if they responded to something and then suddenly they're not, you're going to go back to that thing they responded Mm -hmm. to or the way that you said it, or maybe I need to be more animated on this part because it's boring and Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. So, so I'm constantly doing that and that I'm, I'm great at, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I actually, and my dad, God love him, gave me this advice of, I, I still to this day struggle with writing, mm-hmm. like act, any kind of writing. Like the fact that you two have written books is just like, I, I can't, cause I can like blog or Facebook post or like mm-hmm. blah, 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 you know. But he said, he's like, just write like you're telling me what you want to say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been criticized a lot for that. It's not mm-hmm. academic enough, it's mm-hmm. not whatever. And I'm like, good, yeah. because that's like people want to like, they love to hear me talk. Like I literally do that for a reason. (laughs) That's your craft. Right. That's my craft is like being able to connect with you Mm. and talk to you. So if that's how I write, so be it, you know, we'll Mm. just, we'll figure out the rest. So that's been my default Mm -hmm. is just learning to write. Like I'm trying to tell you a story and then I'll go back and kind of clean it up. And you know what, if that gets me bees on papers, like fine, whatever. That's how I wrote my book. Yeah. Same. If, yeah, right. Like it, like you know, it's blog posts, stories I told them off, stories I told over dinner <coughs> that like somehow, some way ended up in a to a proposal which I bamboozled people at Random House into buying. I didn't. Mm-hmm. My agent. Did. Yeah, sure. She was like glitter, 
Um, <laughs> Which like, again, I'm totally here for it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. And I'm just like, you know, I feel a lot of envy because I'm just like, oh, am I, am I writing at a, 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 at a stupid level? And I'm like, no, I'm writing at a level that is what, that is the way that I'm having this conversation with yeah. other people, you know? Well, and I, so I'm doing my doctorate, right? Because partially because I want to like, this is for me, mm-hmm. right? Like we were talking about success and like I did a bachelor's degree and I did a master's degree in order to have the profession that I felt like I needed and mm-hmm. wanted, right? I needed those degrees. Mm-hmm. This one's for me. Yeah. Like I don't need this degree. Yeah. And in fact, it is a little bit of a financial hardship right now, which is I struggle with on a regular basis. Like, mm-hmm. why am I doing this? And blah, blah, blah. But it feels, it is selfish, but in the best way, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I'm proving to myself, I will never forget. So, you know, poor me, this is my tiny violin story, but like I have plenty of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, so I learned to read in the fourth grade and I go through fifth, sixth grade. I'm in, a, I'm in a, what we call junior high. So that started in seventh grade. By eighth grade, I'm in advanced math, which I was always good at math because I knew numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I was in the advanced classes. And mm-hmm. I, one of my seventh grade teachers walked in and she was like, oh, I'm looking forward. She's like, you're in this class? Oh, no. Oh, I know. No. Don't those things just Ooh, like stick with you? Oh, they live. And I've tried so hard. Like, mm-hmm. I know she loved me. I know she she was just surprised. Like, I'm trying to give her all the grace that mm-hmm. I can. And like, honestly, she's fueling this doctorate. Mm. Like, what are you doing in this class? Mm -hmm. You know? And I'm like, I deserve to be here. I am good. I am great. You know, like, Mm. so that's why I'm trying to redefine success in all of our ways. And also not like, I think part of the struggle with all of us is right. Like constantly (laughs) trying to not let the ooze like of pain just fall out of us, you know? Um, But anyway, Let's live in that life and whatever. I'm done. I've had a half a bottle of wine. I've had one and a half beers and I have to drive across town. So I'm going to eat some food. All right. <laughs> so gross. Let's go eat some food. We're going to find our husbands who I came and pr- went. Yeah. They I think they're gardening. I think they're in the garden. So Eric and I's thing is to drink wine together <laughs> while our husbands go play in the dirt. Oh my God. They love the dirt. Some of the, the they seeds, do. The seeds that the come seeds, through honey. both oh, of our houses. I don't think that you know. <laughs> well, I see a lot of what they're I posts, feel like I see, this has like, just started. He does put it all in. You know? I mean, I don't. I, I mean, it's probably gone on for a while, but I feel like I feel like you don't even know. <laughs> here's the thing: I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be encouraging because I love, I love what he's doing, and I love sure. that he's doing it. But I'm also just like, okay, where are the hard limits? Like, at, like at one point, our whole guest bathtub was filled with uh, dirt and plant stuff, and I was like, excuse me. When I, uh, you know, when Lin Manuel Miranda comes where he needs to shower, right? Um, so that's my hard limit. But like, I just don't know how like, we are going to live in a rainforest cafe. Before yeah. Long. No, I um. When you find it, let me know because <laughs> I I really and Derek edits this, so I won't say anymore. Besides, I love you, honey, and I, I love the plants. I love Derek. I love David. right. No, no, and I genuinely like he, he. Yesterday, I came home from church and he was covering our front lawn with plastic black plastic and I was like what are you doing he's like I'm killing off grass and he's like <coughs> here are flowers I'm growing you flowers baby oh. and I'm like I'm all for it I'm here for it but I was like that's a lot of black plastic on my lawn <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I mean I live in suburbia where I don't care about anybody mm-hmm. I mean I love everybody around me and yet I don't care what you think of my lawn like whatever mm-hmm. all right Layton has to let her cat out of her guest bedroom 
Um, that alarm literally just went off. Let me, oh, like here, I want to, I want to hold you up. I'm going to stop recording. Here's, bye everybody. Thank you.